Thanks for listening to our episode today of the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm Ross Romano, and I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Mike Anderson. Mike has been an educator for more than 25 years. He was a public school teacher for 15. He's also taught preschool, coached swim teams, taught at the university level, graduate level, and he now works as a consultant across the U.S. and beyond, providing professional learning on a variety of critical topics. Mike's ninth and latest book is Tackling the Motivation Crisis, available from ASCD. And let me tell you, Mike and I are recording this after dinner. It's been a long day for both of us. And so we are exactly the right people to talk about motivation. How about that? I am nodding and smiling as you say that, Ross. Absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of motivation, what motivated you to write the book? What inspired you to tackle this topic? Yeah, great question to start us off. I think there were a couple of different things going on. One is that I was doing a lot of work in schools already on topics like how to use choice as a vehicle for boosting student engagement and um, thinking really critically about the language that we use when we're talking to kids and how that can impact and shape how they feel about learning. And as I was doing that work, there was just thread that kept running through all of that, which was the question of motivation. And, and it was a really common question that teachers were asking is what about that kid who puts their head down on their desk and says, this is stupid and I don't want to do it? Or what about the kid who's just the grade grubber and all they right. seem to care about is getting the grade and the work is just their means to an end? So I was seeing a variety of questions that all had this theme of motivation. And it's something I've been fascinated with for a long time. And so I finally decided it was time to go ahead and put some thoughts together and, and put it down in a book. Yeah, and, and you referenced in... Um, the introduction to the book, you talked about that direct experience with schools who this keeps coming up again and again with their pain point. And you also cited um, some recent surveys, one from Gallup and uh, and a couple others that indicated one that, you know, students almost half self-reported being disengaged or, you know, maybe actively disengaged or just not yep. fully engaged in school and, and also their teachers not feeling like their students were super engaged or motivated. But you also mentioned that in some ways it may not be as bad as it seems, at least that we have the raw materials, right? That, that in many cases we may have motivated students, but they're not motivated by what we're asking them to do. Which, so can I jump in and tell you a quick story about that? Yeah. Like my son is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. My son is one of the most motivated people I've ever met, mm -hmm. but really usually didn't want to do what teachers were asking him to do in school. He's in right. college now and he's doing really well. But I remember one night in high school, he was not doing his physics homework. Right. And he told me, I'm not doing my physics homework tonight. It's dumb. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, what are you going to do? So what he wanted to do was go down into the basement into his self-made maker space and build a rocket a cannon that would fire a Nerf dart over our roof using PVC tubing, a bicycle pump, and an irrigation shutoff valve. Yes. So if you had asked his teacher, is he a motivated student? The teacher probably would have said, no, he doesn't do his homework a lot of times and he does the least amount possible, but he's an unbelievably motivated learner. Right. And I think so that the challenge that we have as educators is how do we tap into the motivations that kids have? Right so that their motivations are aligned with what we're doing in school. That's a huge challenge. Yeah, and it makes sense if you think about it through the lens of what we would recommend to adults, right? You say, well, if, you, you know, if you're motivated to succeed, you need to be mindful about spending your time on what matters, right? And, mm -hmm. and people, who are, people who aren't you know, motivated, who aren't successful or spending their time on a bunch of tangential things or wasting their time, people who are motivated, they know, but it, it so if schools aren't making the case for what matters, right, aren't explaining to students, aren't articulating, aren't, you know, aren't in some cases designing a curriculum that really matters, but oftentimes just not really communicating why it matters, uh, why should kids care about it? And with some of the kids too, I mean, I think that it's clear here, certainly, that at least the majority of students would have this intrinsic self-motivation, right? And we need to tap into it. Is there, is that everybody? Is there a difference between somebody who has motivation that we just aren't really unleashing and someone who perhaps isn't that motivated? Does it yeah, matter? I, yeah, I think it does matter. And I will say that I don't think I've ever met somebody who's not motivated at all. 
And in the book, I outline six intrinsic motivators that are common to all people, autonomy, purpose, competence, belonging, curiosity, and fun. Those are psychological needs. As a species, those are things that we crave. Every kid who comes in is looking to have those needs met. They want some power in the control. They want some connection to other people. They want to explore things they think are interesting and cool. They want to have fun. So the so I don't think we've got kids who truly don't have motivation. I think we've got a lot of kids whose motivation often doesn't align with what the teacher is asking them to do. Or, or maybe it's an and or we've got kids who have met with struggles in school. And so there are barriers up that make it harder for them to engage in work. Once right. you think you're a bad reader, it makes it a whole lot harder to care about reading because if you think you're not good at it and, and you're craving a sense of competence, then reading now makes you feel incompetent. And so there are barriers that, have, that develop with kids as they go through school that we also have to uncover. But I really, I truly believe that everybody's deep down inside motivated. Yeah, and it is uh, seems to be true that in so much of life, too many things are organized around negative motivation. Right? If you <laughs> don't do this, or else this will happen. Um, versus We're organized around you know, deficits. right deficits instead of assets and opportunities. Okay, if you're able to do these things, then these great things could happen. It's usually always the reverse, whether it's financial realities for many people, right? It's it's trying to just hit a baseline versus being able to focus on bigger goals or whether it's in school, you know, avoiding discipline or avoiding being held back or avoiding having a note sent home to your parents because you got a bad grade versus, okay, let's take those things off the table and not worry about that. Let's worry about what are, what's the what's the the true you know possibility of all the good things that can happen if we learn right not right. not about grades and those kind of things but just saying there, there's unlimited potential but do we ever take time to think about that or are we more worried about oh let's avoid doing the bad thing yeah or we organize schools around deficits so that if a kid is struggling with writing then we we say we're going to focus on that a lot Right. Which is hard. Like if somebody told me that I was going to have to spend a lot of time working on dancing, I would struggle with that because my perception, which is accurate, by the way, of myself as a dancer is not a good one. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to go work on it, even though I deep down inside would love to be able to dance well. And so what we typically do to kids in school is that once we find a learning deficit, then we do two things. We say, we're going to make you do it more and we're going to pull you away from your peers we're gonna give it to you in bite-sized, meaningless chunks, and we're gonna take away your autonomy. You're not gonna get choice anymore. So it's right. typically in gifted and talented programs where you see kids doing all of this amazing project-based learning and really awesome hands-on learning that has meaning and relevance, and there's a product in the end that you're proud of. And for kids who are struggling in remedial and special education, they're often doing drill and kill to them, what feels like meaningless work away from their peers with little or no power or control. And so it's like we're taking away the very intrinsic motivators that they need to be self-motivated about their work. It's it's a recipe for disaster. Right. And, and because of the um, restrictions of, you know, the limited time we have within the organized instructional environment and also with the, the nature of school being that, of course, we're trying to learn across the curriculum areas, develop well-rounded students, et cetera. But yeah, often the result of that might be that the subject area in which you're struggling is the one where you're spending the most of your time. And if that also happens to be the one that you're not enjoying, because, because I have an A in, what a, you know, <laughs> yeah. I have an A in math because I'm just naturally good at math and I really enjoy math, but I can get that A easily. So then I'm not spending extra time on it because I've earned my A. I'm really struggling in language arts. And uh, now I'm just having to, to remediate that. And um, it's, you know, it, in some ways, it's just the reality of what schools are, are meant to do is you are supposed to learn a well-rounded curriculum. In other ways, it's saying, okay, you know, perhaps 
this is what's manifesting as, as looking like a lack of engagement or motivation is the pie chart of my total time as a student is, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately spent primarily on the areas where I, I don't feel like I'm doing my best. And we do it in a way that further demotivates mm -hmm. by pulling kids away from their peers, putting them in small groups of other kids who are struggling. Um, I don't want to say dumbing down, but sort of breaking the work down into smaller bite-sized components. And we do that with the best of intentions to try and help kids be successful, but it often loses meaning when you shrink it down into these little tiny bite-sized skills, when instead we could be designing learning in a classroom that is differentiated so that all kids can be successful together. So for example, in an elementary or middle school classroom, many teachers use a reader's workshop approach where all kids are readers in a reader's workshop, and we provide a, a variety and array of books and teach kids how to make good book choices, how to find books that they can read, that they wanna read. Um, and then we do some whole class teaching, but lots of individual one-on-one -on -one coaching and support with kids so that every kid in the classroom is getting one-on-one -on -one instruction, but they're all doing it within the context of books that they wanna read and can read. Mm -hmm. Once we have that model in place, we don't have to pull kids out of class for special ed reading support because they're getting their differentiated reading support right along with everybody else in the classroom. Right. And the same goes for the kids who are ready for much higher level content than you would normally get at the grade level. We can allow those kids to read books at their level and give them the one-on-one -on -one coaching so we don't have to pull them out of class and put them in a gifted and talented program. Right. It's so much richer and more diverse and interesting and humane for everybody. Um, but that's not typically the way schools are structured, which is which is too bad. Yeah. So, so given that um, clearly a lot of these practices uh, disincentivize motivation and, and engagement with learning, um, then what's wrong with incentives? So yeah. and, and I know, and uh, you know, we only have so much time here. Uh, so you may, you know, I know you have uh, plenty of of reasons why you know incentives are are not the way to go but yeah i mean what what is the you know what are the core problems there yeah this is such an important thing for us to understand because it seems to make so much intuitive sense that if a kid appears to lack motivation then what we need to give them is motivation they mm -hmm. seem like they don't care about the work so we try to give them a reason to care so we say if you read books in the summer you'll get pizza gift cards for every book that you read Right. That seems like such a simple, intuitive, easy to implement strategy to boost motivation around reading. But there are some flaws with that. For one thing, we're sending a really interesting message. In psychology, it's called signaling. Mm -hmm. We're sending a signal to the recipient of this program that they shouldn't want to read. If we say, if you read books over the summer, you'll get pizza. Like, why would we have to do that if reading itself was awesome? Mm -hmm. Just simply by saying you'll get something out of it, we sort of de-emphasize the importance of whatever it is we're trying to incentivize. That's one problem. Another problem is, is that kids start to view pizza as the ultimate goal. Now, Ross, you're a smart guy. If you're a fifth grade kid and your goal is to maximize pizza, are you going to read and you get pizza gift certificates for every book you read? Are you going to read short books or long books? Uh, well, you know, I mean... Short books, uh, yeah, right? Because you I can read a lot of them. I understand pizza and I understand uh, efficiency. So <laughs> Exactly. So <laughs> as a kid, you're going to game the system and figure out how to maximize pizza because reading is just a means to an end at this point. This is some of the psychology that happens with these kinds of incentives and programs. And, um, and do you have show notes? You must have show notes for your podcast. Of course, yeah. Okay, I'm going to give you a link to a live binder. It's an online binder of resources okay. that listeners could go and look at if they're interested. I've got all kinds of research studies in there that, that highlight some of the potential problems of incentive systems, including de-emphasizing what we want to emphasize, taking kids' eye off the ball. Now they're thinking about pizza instead of reading. Um Oh, there are so many others. I mean, there are, there are research studies from psychology and economics even um, that, that highlight some of the inherent flaws in these systems. And we do them with the best of intentions. But I think we, could, we can safely say we know they don't work because we've been trying these things for 30 or 40 years. And if they worked at this point, wouldn't we all have, wouldn't all of our kids be motivated? Uh, you, would, you would think, but... Uh... 
Right. Yeah. So, there's unintended consequences too, because I mean, you know, you've been talking about pizza. Now I kind of want pizza and I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> about wrapping this up. And going to get some. So, um, yeah, well, that's, that's, you know, that's the key question, right? Is if these don't work, why are they hard to quit? It's, it's right there in the subtitle of the book, you know, hard to quit incentive systems. And, um, you know, so that's the critical question. And it, it kind of makes me think, you know, I recently had um, Peter DeWitt here on the podcast. We talked about his book, De-Implementation. And the de-implementation concept comes from, it started the medical field, but it's about abandoning, sometimes replacing, but often completely abandoning existing low value practices. Okay, we have the data, we have the evidence that this isn't additive. We're spending time and resources on it that's a waste because we're not getting anything out of it. Um, but it's often not natural, right, in, in schools to say we need to get rid of, of what we're doing. Um, but in a lot of these cases, you know, maybe it's technology, maybe it's certain assessment systems. They may be things with some amount of hard evidence that they don't work. I mean, is there any relationship between that and these incentive systems, is it just, is there a, like a difficulty that uh, yeah. schools are having really being able to identify these definitely don't work? <laughs> we we know they don't work, even if you kind of yeah. know on the back of your head. <laughs> well, I mean, I can give you just one example that comes to mind right away. There was a middle school that implemented a reward system to reward attendance. They were struggling with kids coming to school. Right. And so um, kids who had really high attendance at the end of a month got some sort of prize and recognition for good attendance. And then they tracked to see what happened after that. Those kids had worse attendance than before the program mm -hmm. after they'd been given the award for it. They got really clear data as a school. And that's one of the studies that's in that live binder. People can go check out really clear data that what they were trying to do was actually having detrimental effects. And you ask a really interesting question, which is like, so why are these things so hard to quit? What is it about these systems that make them so sticky? And there are a couple of things I think. One is they often appear to work in the short term. When I was a classroom teacher and I tried one of these systems, I called it chips for pizza. I had country crock butter dishes in the middle of each group of four desks in my fourth graders classroom when I was teaching. And when kids were doing what I wanted, I would put a couple of chips into the dish. They were these purple cardboard discs. They look like poker chips. Right. Um, you know, so if kids remembered to raise their hand or if they were polite or, if, you know, they were responsible, I'd throw a couple of chips in. And if they blurted or if they forgot to bring in their homework, I'd come and take a couple out. So uh, that was the system. And then when kids in the group got up to 75 chips, I would take them out for pizza. So when I first announced this system and first implemented the system, it looked like it worked so well because there was this sort of fresh energy and the kids were excited about it. And so they could sort of really work at their self-control <laughs> and do what they knew they were supposed to do. But after a few weeks, that effect faded. The, it, the allure of the pizza wasn't strong enough to keep them going forward. And we started to see all kinds of other problems that happened with these systems. Kids started to get sneaky. So I'd be walking around the room and I'd be coming toward a back table and I'd hear kids going, shh, shh, look out, he's coming, he's coming. You know, like hiding whatever devious behavior was going on at the table. Um, kids started to get on each other. Like, thanks a lot, Billy. Now we're never going to get pizza because yeah. Billy forgot to bring his homework in, which if I'm honest with myself was part of my plan. I was trying to leverage yeah. peer pressure with the system, but then when it happened, I really didn't like the way it felt. Uh -huh. Kids started to accuse each other and they probably were of stealing chips out of each other's dishes. So what, what happens with these systems is because they seem to work you get that initial glow that tricks us into making us think that these systems are effective. And so then three or four or five weeks down the road, when they're not working so well anymore, we feel like we need to like up the ante. Maybe pizza isn't enough. Maybe I need to offer an ice cream party, or maybe I need a new incentive system. And you, again, you try the new incentive system, you get that little rush because it sort of appears to work for a couple of weeks and then it fades. And so you keep going back to these incentive systems. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's sort of like junk food fills you up in the moment, even though it's doing you long-term harm, but it's so easy and it tastes so good that it's so easy to keep going back to McDonald's, even yeah. though you know that you're doing harm to yourself in the long run. That's 
that's part of what happens to these systems. Another reason they're so sticky in schools is because principals will often tell teachers to use these. Mm -hmm. And especially in the world of special education, behaviorism runs very strong. So some of these systems are written into kids' IEPs. And then as a classroom teacher, you really feel like you have to follow the IEP and do this token reward system for this kid. So they're, they're really sort of baked into our culture and our system, which is which is one of the reasons it's so hard to give them up once we're in them. Right. And you can, you know, of course, see the um, the reasoning that follow, follows of once once you're using it, and then it kind of starts to lose effectiveness and you need to try something new. I mean, you're thinking at this point, well, if this isn't even working, if we if we don't have incentives anymore, then they're really not going to do anything because you've yeah. trained the kids at that point. And so clearly um, coming up with alternatives before we start down this road is going to be the way to go. Um, and and, you and know, can I, I just tell you, can I tell you real quick about how I got off that system? Sure. Because I didn't use the chips for pizza forever. Like once I saw it crashing and burning, what I, what I did was I just took the whole system away. And at first the kids were really upset because they wanted to go out to pizza. And so I kept that part. I set up a system where every Wednesday I would take one group out to pizza because we had this little local family pizza place right at the end of the driveway to my school. So it was really easy to walk there during the lunch break. So I kept the fun part. Kids just didn't have to earn it and they couldn't lose it. Right. And that was so important because that was a lovely way to build community with the kids and build relationships with them. I loved it. They loved it. And then, so that was one thing I did was I kept the reward, but it wasn't a reward anymore. It was just something awesome we were doing because we liked hanging out together. And then I had to invest more time and energy in teaching kids the skills they needed to manage themselves instead of just trying to use the reward to manage the kids for me, if that makes sense. Yeah. You uh, you're able to show them that you value them as people instead of as performers, right? Um, yeah. By by doing that, and you know, and as I was um, you know thinking about the book earlier, and and also thinking about the the news uh, this week or last week um, recently about the uh, the low NAEP scores. Uh, this year I and mean, coming out of the pandemic and the declines in math and reading. And at first, uh, one of my thoughts about it when I was first reading the news was, I wonder, I mean, there's certainly are some, some real effects here, right? We certainly know that students um, that are in schools that already were tending toward um, being more underprivileged and, and having, certainly there are, there were, was real you know, loss of learning and negative academic effects. In some other cases though, I was thinking, okay, what portion of this is potentially that it, during the pandemic, some students got away from the standardized testing schedule. So they just, they were just out of practice on how to take a test. And all this is showing is that, you know, test taking is, is just about, it's just about the task of test taking. It's not actually about knowledge. And then, you know, and thinking about your book, it also made me think, well, you know, is this a really dire illustration of this uh, motivation principle where, you know, once students um, basically know, you know, for a certain period of time, didn't have to worry about those tests, then they thought they didn't have to worry about their learning. And then once the test came back, um, their results borne out. And it's an illustration not of, um, necessarily the detriments and drawbacks of remote and hybrid learning, but of the system that emphasizes testing above all else. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about it. Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> I mean, I, well, so first of all, wouldn't it have been weird if test scores didn't drop during the pandemic? Like, right. I, I, don't, I don't understand why this is even news. Wouldn't, wouldn't it have been really bizarre if there weren't changes in achievement after we went through a global pandemic? Mm -hmm. I mean, there has been such collective trauma on so many fronts that of course learning is impacted. And of course you make the very valid point, like how much emphasis should we actually be putting in these test scores anyway? Mm -hmm. We know that the tests are inherently flawed. So yeah, I, 
I also saw that report and honestly, I thought, eh, I'm not even going to really dig into this all that much. I, I'm so much more concerned with the kids that I've got in front of me and how am I helping them find interest and excitement, enthusiasm and enjoyment for the work that we're doing. But yeah, th those NAEP scores, I, I don't put a lot of credence in them to begin with because of all of the flaws that we've got in that system. And then when I saw that the scores had taken a dramatic drop, I was kind of like, well, duh, what else did we think was going to happen? Right. Yeah, it's uh, the type of uh, information that seems important on its face. And then when you realize, well, um, everybody's going to draw, you know, five or six inaccurate conclusions from this, it would be better off <laughs> if we didn't have it in the first place. Uh, because, you know, ultimately... Um, probably all of these explanations play some part in it. And realistically, the point is like, does it even matter anyway? <laughs> what what does that test score indicate? Um, As a classroom know. teacher, I always really struggled with balancing the, the system's need for those tests with what good it actually did me and my students. And there were mm -hmm. often such large gaps between those two things that I... I just really struggled with them on a lot of fronts. Okay, so we've established, uh, of course, that you know incentives are are not going to work, and certainly not going to work in the long run. Um, so we want to avoid having to come up with artificial incentives, and. The answer, of course, tap into students' intrinsic motivation. And, and one of the lines um, that stood out to me is, you know, we need to make sure students' academic work is compelling and interesting enough that they will want to do it, right? It seems simple enough. Um, puts the onus on the school to say, hey, you know, think do do work that they want to do, and then they'll do it, right? Um, yeah, but what we, are the critical questions? Let me just say, we, let me just say that I, this is so so important. We should expect kids to be unmotivated to do unmotivating work. Right. The work has to be awesome from their perspective if we're going to have true self motivation. Okay, sorry I cut you off. I just had to emphasize that it's so important. Right. I think that makes you know it makes total sense, right? And and if something is uh, rote and repetitive and uninteresting and unimportant, um, then, you know, you even say like those kids who are doing that willingly, then we have to kind of wonder why, because they might be learning the wrong lessons. But what are the, the critical questions around that? If I'm looking at that line, okay, we need to make their academic work something that they're going to want to do. And before I assign it to them and then I realize, oh, they don't want to do this. <laughs> How do I figure out ahead of time and ask myself some questions to reflect on, okay, is the work that I'm creating something that students are actually going to be interested in? Yeah. My gosh, this could be a really drawn out, long, lengthy, heady conversation, but I think listeners are probably interested in something really concrete and practical. So I'll say there's one really high leverage practice that we could be leaning into. There are, of course, lots of ways to do this, but one really sort of simple way is to offer kids more choice about mm -hmm. what they're learning or how they're learning it. You know, we're all practicing the skill of nonfiction reading. Mm -hmm. Instead of all reading the same text out of the anthology, what if we let kids pick from a variety of nonfiction texts so that the kids who are interested in frogs can read about frogs and the right. kid who wants to read about hurricanes can read about hurricanes. Now we can all practice the skills of nonfiction reading, but through a text that's interest interesting to us. When we're doing um, math work, we might present kids with a variety of math problems at a variety of challenge levels, and then encourage kids to find the problems that give them the just right level of challenge. I heard one calculus teacher describe that to her kids as, it'll make you sweat a little bit if it's a just right problem, but with some hard work and maybe a little help from a friend, you could do it. So by offering kids choices that are that connect with their interests, or that offer um, a variety of challenge levels, we can tap into kids' need for competence, mm -hmm. for autonomy, for curiosity and interest, yep. even for fun, sometimes belonging. So we don't necessarily have to sort of tip our schools upside down, shake it all out and start over again. Any teacher listening to this could think, okay, what's a lesson I'm teaching tomorrow? What's one small, simple way I could offer my students a little bit more autonomy? and a chance for differentiation through giving a couple of different choices. 
And that's, yeah. that's one really concrete way that we can hit a lot of those intrinsic motivators that are going to help kids tap into self-motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Having choice is, um, is, is critical. And, um, and as you, you know, reference some of these, yet there's the six intrinsic motivators that you write about in the book um, for fostering that self-motivation and that deeper engagement. And uh, I won't presume to speak for the listeners. <laughs> I'll speak for myself and saying, I kind of split them up into two groups of three. Um, the three that to me are the quote unquote, you know, more obvious and intuitive examples and the three that are a little bit less obvious on the surface, right? So I'm autonomy, totally belonging. how you did this, yeah. So, so my first group is autonomy, belonging and fun, which I think if you look at them as far as thinking about, you know, what's motivating about autonomy and what about lack of autonomy is demotivating, most people can think about that. Of course, you go into more detail in the book, but you know, we we can imagine, okay, if I don't feel like I have autonomy, I'm not feeling super motivated. Same with belonging. Um, if you think about things like the extrinsic motivation of putting stars up on the board and seeing where students rank, you can imagine how that would maybe work against the concept of of belonging, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. and collaboration. And the same with fun. Um, you know, I think we all certainly understand that students are motivated by fun, even if we're not always the best at understanding that learning can can also be fun. <laughs> but then the others that stood out, the competence really stood out to me because I feel like competence, there's, there's often negative connotations around the concept, I guess. It doesn't <laughs> seem maybe ambitious enough or it's not exciting and thrilling, right? It seems kind of baseline, but in reality, um, when you think about it, you can get pretty far in this life by being competent at most things and really good at one or two things, right? <laughs> number one. Number two, um, certainly the flip side of feeling incompetent is yes. one of the most demotivating feelings one can possibly have, yes. you know, just, and, and um, so, I, you know, I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about why competence is one of these core six self-motivators and then you know alongside something like fun right with <laughs> they're very different concepts but both really are important here they are so it's interesting that you say that because i struggled with the word competence as the anchor for that thing and in the book i offer a whole bunch of other words for each of the six intrinsic motivators to kind of flesh them out a little bit mm -hmm. in dan pink's book drive he uses a different term for that. He calls it mastery mm -hmm. because it's really motivating to master something and to right. feel like you're really good at something. I shied away from that in a book for teachers because mastery also has baggage with it and mm -hmm. often is used as a word around standards and standardization. And I didn't like that. But anyway, the, the idea of competence is it's about feeling that you're good at something. Mm -hmm. You're much more motivated to work on something if you... If you look at the task and say, oh, that looks a, bit, a little bit challenging, but I think I can do that. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah, that's something that I can handle. That's something I'm good at. We can enter into a task like that, we as a species, with much more positive energy. And as you said, the flip side is if you look at something and you think, I'm not good at that. I can't do that. I don't even know where to start. It's really hard to muster any motivation at all. So mm -hmm. competence, as I'm talking about it in this work, is really about the sense of feeling competent. You know, I feel good at that. I think I can be successful. Um, that's really what it's all about. Yeah. And they, I mean, they, competence and mastery to me are, are living at different ends, different points on the spectrum. Right. Um, but, you know, I feel like once a, a kid has this crystallized feeling of themselves as incompetent, it's just really hard to try to reverse that, it, yeah. you know, and versus um, I've not yet mastered this. Okay. <laughs> right. You can eventually get there, but but it's important to what to just understand that you know competence is is pretty good in itself. It's it's and also it's it's really you know that feeling of you know that thing that keeps you kind of motivated, keeps you as feeling like a, a valuable contributor in what you're doing. Um, and and then when I talk about these other two, so purpose and curiosity are the other two that are kind of in this group of three. And I really you know see these three things. Um, I mean, all six of them are, are connected, but these three, there's like this through line of, I, you know, I don't think most, we would have too much debate on that kids have intrinsic curiosity, right? Curiosity is 
you can see it any young kid you look at and unfortunately our institutions you know sometimes kind of tamp that down and beat that out of them but curiosity um if encouraged is how you're going to find your purpose right you need to be able to explore a number of things you need to kind of see what interests you what you feel like you're kind of pretty good at or that you just really are motivated by and you kind of work toward the idea of a purpose which you know schools can introduce because kids aren't born necessarily understanding what a purpose is right so that's where we need to kind of tie those things together and then you know once you know what your purpose is you can work and work to become really competent at it to fulfill that purpose so um you know talk about I guess you know curiosity what's your view of uh, how this typically plays out in schools and, and, you know, the way in which this is either used or, uh, or not, you know, necessarily used as a, as a yeah. key motivator and, and then how that kind of leads to this idea of purpose. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a story from today. I was working in an elementary school that I'm doing a lot of consulting work in right now. And there was a third grader in reading during reading workshop who was clearly not engaged with the book he had. He had the book open. He wasn't being disruptive, but he also wasn't reading it. His right. eyes weren't scanning the page. He wasn't turning the pages. And so I went over and sat down with him and said, it looks like you're kind of struggling to get into this book. What are some things you like to do? And uh, he said, we had a little conversation. He said he likes riding his bike after school. He said he's also really into race cars, like car racing. And then I said, all right, so that's interesting. And I wrote down those notes and I said, are there any animals you like? I said, you know, when I was a kid, I really liked snakes and frogs and turtles. He said, I have a pet snake at home. I said, get out of here. What kind of snake do you have? He said, a ball python. I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a cool snake. I used to have one as a class pet my first year teaching. So I jotted that down. So just from that short conversation, I've now got some interests, points of interest where I can go to the library and say, hey, do we have any early reader books on snakes? I know they're out there. <laughs> right. That's one of the ways we can tap into kids' curiosities is to get to know them and find out what kinds of things they're already interested in mm -hmm. and leverage that through writing and reading and math and all those other content areas. I do think there's another important part of curiosity, though, which is that part of our role in school is also to introduce kids to new topics. Right. and new content so that they can find new passions and curiosities. So I think there are both of those roles going on at once. Yeah, and, and curiosity just really, you know, you think about it in the context of grades. Curiosity has zero relationship to a grading scale. You can be <laughs> curious about something and, you know, there's no, I guess there's no limit to how much you can know about it. There's a limit to how high of a grade you can get on something. Um, but you can get an, an A on an assignment and still only know 5% of what there is to know about mm -hmm. that topic, right? Um, and, school game. You know, and vice versa. You could be really curious about something and not get a great grade on right. the subject because you just haven't mastered the, all the knowledge yet or um, you're just you know, still a work in progress or you're curious about some aspect of it that's a little different than what's on the assignment. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a perfect motivator to think about, okay, are we like using this for what it can be, which is potentially the most reliably motivating thing if we find out what somebody's curious about and also very long term viable. If our purpose as a school is to prepare students for success in life. Um, after they leave our classroom, Better help they, they're going to need passion. to continue to be curious because the world today is different than when we were in school. The, the world in 20 years for kids that are in kindergarten today is who knows. Uh, yeah, no, no doubt. Such an important, such an important thing. I remember once I had a parent, one of my fifth graders' parents came up to me at open house night. I had just shared at open house how kids during the school year would get a couple of opportunities to do open-ended research projects around nonfiction reading and writing. They'd get to explore a topic they were interested in and put on a presentation for the class. And this mom came up to me and she said, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Kids are going to get to do research. That's awesome. But please, no more turtle projects. Right. I was like, what? She said her son, Aaron, had been obsessed with turtles. And every year he got to do some sort of 
independent project, he would do it on turtles. And so she was like begging me, please no more turtles. I said, I'm not going to tell Aaron he can't study turtles. I'll help him come up with new questions. I'll help him dig into some new content and new like ways of thinking about turtles, but I'm not going to tell him he can't study turtles. And then I told her about this famous scientist. I think his name is David Carroll, who's been located in New Hampshire for a long time. He has spent 40 years as a scientist studying turtles. Right. Like, he hasn't yet exhausted his knowledge of turtles after 40 years of a scientific career. How could we tell a 10-year-old that, they, that they're all done with turtles now? I think we need to lean into these interests and curiosities. Um, like you said, it's one of the, it's a real leverage point for helping kids get excited and passionate about schoolwork. Can we just so, talk about purpose real quick before uh, we move yeah. on? Because purpose is so important and I think we often get this wrong in schools. Mm -hmm. I actually think we're really good at explaining to kids the purpose behind stuff. I just think we do it in boring grown-up terms. Mm -hmm. Often some sort of version of you'll need this someday. Right. Now, the reason you should practice your math facts is because when we get to long multiplication, you're going to be a lot better at long multiplication if you have your math facts fluent. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when you get to sixth grade, your teachers are going to expect you to know how to write in a complete paragraph. So that's why you need to learn it in fifth grade. Or it's on the test or it's in the curriculum. For a kid who's struggling with motivation in the moment, those kinds of far off kinds of purpose, you might need it someday with an adult you haven't met yet. Right. That's not compelling. So sometimes we need to manufacture purpose. Like we're writing poetry and we're all gonna create a poetry anthology as a class. We're mm -hmm. all gonna add poems we've made into our poetry book and we're gonna copy it for everybody in the class and it's gonna go in our classroom library. Like there's a more immediate purpose about why I should care about these poems. Oh, cause I'm gonna add these poems to the class book. I care about that. Or we're yeah. learning this math concept and we're gonna create a bulletin board out in the hallway to teach other kids what we've been learning about in math. Yeah. There's, there's purpose that can matter more in the moment. So I just wanted to mention that about purpose because I, I, think, some, I think we're often really good at telling kids our purpose, like why mm -hmm. we care or why we think they should care. We need to be better at helping them feel more immediate purpose around things that matter to them in the moment. Yeah, I mean, my evaluation of purpose is that it, it has to really be personal animating and relevant um and the animating piece is it needs to be vibrant and alive and so it, purpose can't just be words on a paper or something that's going to happen in the future but it needs to be that thing that keeps you coming back to that over and over again when if we think about the purpose of the work that we do right it's like that thing where even when you're tired at night or you know what you're like this is important i i gotta keep going this is why i'm here yeah. Um, and so it doesn't mean that each thing is, you know, <laughs> each, each, each assignment or each subject matter is what a kid feels is their personal purpose, but you need to make it personal to them. Why, why should you care about, why does this purpose yeah. matter to you? Um, the the relevance piece is the other part, yeah. because that's the thing where we have to kind of backwards map. So you might talk about that long-term purpose. Well, when you're a grown up, you'll need to know this, but that's not relevant to an eight-year-old because that's too far in the future. And there's too many steps in between now. So how do we work backward from there to say, like, what's the next couple of steps <laughs> toward toward that long-term purpose so that it actually makes sense in your world? You know, and, and uh, like, I feel like those things, if they don't go together, then, you know, there, there's just going to be a difference of opinion between educator and student about whether or not there's any purpose to this assignment. Yeah, and and that's so important to recognize. And I love that word relevant. It needs to be relevant to the kid. Like we've got our own set of reasons why this work is purposeful, why kids need to learn how to do all the stuff that we're teaching them in schools. But we need to make sure that the relevance matters to the kid in the moment. And this is, there's a connection here to the extrinsic motivators we were talking about earlier and why we do those incentive systems. When we give kids the boring grown-up purpose of you'll need this someday, and that doesn't resonate, and they say, I don't care about that, that's one of the reasons that we slip into those reward systems. Because we're like, oh, they don't care. I need to give them a reason to care. I'll tell them that in order to get a good grade, they have to do these three things. Right. That's an extrinsic motivator. Or in order, if you read a lot of books, you'll get pizza. So we're trying to add purpose and relevance there, but we need to do it in ways that align with how we want kids to grow as learners. 
We don't want kids to just care about the grade, I hope. We don't want kids to just be motivated by pizza or rewards. We want them to be motivated by joy and interest and passion and curiosity and all these other things. And so Mm -hmm. that's a really important element of purpose, I think, is not, not falling into the trap of setting up an incentive as the purpose, but thinking of a more relevant, authentic, intrinsic purpose we want kids excited about. Right. Yeah. The, the, the purpose, um, the purpose doesn't change no matter how you, you do this time around. Right? I mean, some of, you know, these other things where there's like a moving, you know, we're, we're moving kind of the goalposts around what the purpose of something is by introducing incentives that are kind of moving, you know, moving kids yeah. attention from here to there. Um, it's like the purpose of what they're doing is changing because it's not really, it's not the actual purpose. <laughs> like right. the, the purpose of doing this is so I get that reward versus uh, what I'm learning or how I'm holding on to their own building it. Um, and so if that's the case, then, okay, we, we have not actually identified the purpose here. We've, 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 we've tricked uh, and fooled these kids in, into a misunderstanding of purpose. Or we're giving uh, them a low level purpose that we actually don't want them to value. We get frustrated when kids say, is this graded? (laughs) Or we get frustrated when kids say, am I going to get something for it when we're giving them a task? But we're the ones who trained them to think like that. Yeah. Who using grades and other prizes as incentives. So yeah, that's that's important to recognize. Um, So you've made the case very well uh, in favor of intrinsic motivation. I do have to ask though, before we close, I mean, are there, are there any occasions in which extrinsic motivation is, is appropriate? I, and I, I was kind of just thinking about in the context of, um, you know, some psychological research that kind of shows that there's a, a two-way influential relationship between thinking and behavior. Um, you know, sometimes, oftentimes, certainly what you think affects how you behave. Um, yep. But also sometimes behaving in a certain way can actually change your thinking. It's like, you know, sometimes yep. there's this advice around um, marriage, you know, even on the days when you're not feeling like you love your spouse that much, <laughs> act like you love them, and then you'll start to feel it again, right? Um, so are there it's certain... We, we eventually become what we pretend to be. <laughs> Something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, you know, but Absolutely. are there certain appropriate times to say, okay, you know, by utilizing some extrinsic motivation here and getting into the routine of this thing. Um, and, you know, maybe it's, you know, I think sometimes we we do this as adults, right? We opt into extrinsic motivation. You talk about reading books. I'm joining a book club because having that deadline and that social pressure will make me read this book. Like, uh, it make me make time to read the book. Now, nobody's forcing you to do that, right? It's your own opting into it and saying, look, this is a good thing for me. Um, but, and you know, you've got with, autonomy with, and belonging right. and purpose. Like there are intrinsic motivators and action there. Right. So, so I mean, what do you think? Are, are there, are yeah. there times? So I think I'm, I'm not one to say never. I just think that we fall into it too easily. And as part of the research on this book, I did a real deep dive into behaviorism, which is the branch of psychology that really relies on um, extrinsic motivational systems in order to shape behaviors. And that started way, way back with Pavlov, And then eventually it was B.F. Skinner who became really famous in the world of psychology for developing the token economy system as the way of training kids out of bad behaviors and into good ones. What's really interesting is when I did this deep dive, I watched several like really in-depth videos and documentaries about the work of Skinner. The token economy system was this one tiny little part of the overall approach to helping a kid who was really out of control, physically violent and aggressive, very little self-control at all. I mean, really hard hard to watch stuff. So they did have a token system where if he maintained a certain level of behavior for short blocks of time, he would get a token and eventually those tokens could be added up and he could exchange them for privileges or, or other things. But as I said, that was just one part of it. Another thing they did was they gave him some autonomy He got some choices about how to structure his day as a part of the program. He was the one who was moving the clock that was set around that behavior modification system. They also partnered him up with a younger child and helped him help a younger child learn how to play. So they gave him some responsibility and belonging and connection. 
They also taught him skills of self-control and strategies of self-control. And they worked with his family on better parenting techniques because the parents in this one particular video I'm thinking about, basically all they knew how to do was beat him. Mm -hmm. Like they would spank and paddle and whip him and that didn't work and they didn't know what else to do. So they gave the parents new strategies. So what I found fascinating is that when you when people typically think of B.F. Skinner and the work of the token economy system, they think of that one part of the system as the system. Right. But there was so much more going on in that work. And what I typically see in schools is that when a kid is seeming out of control or seeming totally unmotivated, it's almost like the first thing somebody recommends is, okay, well, how about we give him a token system and he'll build up to rewards, he'll get extra recess. Mm -hmm. But they're not doing all of that other relationship building and skill building and trying to figure out what his intrinsic motivations are so they can tap into that. So I think that by a really highly skilled person who is using that reward system as a part of an overall plan, and there's an eventual plan to phase out the use of that system. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes there, there is a place for that. Um, okay. I just think that too often we use those systems as the system instead of part right. of a much bigger picture. And that's what we got to be careful about. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, leads into this, which is you know, your chance for your kind of parting message. And I'm thinking about that teacher who might be saying, or, or school leader who might be saying, we're in too deep, you know, like I, it's going to be, we, I don't know if we can get rid of this now. We've, we've been doing it too long or, you know, could be that teacher who is like, I would like to get rid of this, but my principal like kind of keeps telling me to do it. I mean, what's your kind of parting message to that person to say, you, you actually can pivot away from this. It's not going to be um, as bad as, as you think it might be. And you'll come out better on the other end. Yeah, well, I guess my message is that I did it. I used a lot of these systems as a young teacher. And as I developed my skills and got better at teaching kids what they needed to be successful and got better at leveraging intrinsic motivators, I didn't need those extrinsic motivational systems. Even when I saw them not working, I, it took me a while, you know, to, to get rid of them. Um, so it can feel overwhelming. And, um, and so the kind of the three big ideas to keep in mind is, we need to try and use those systems less, lean into intrinsic motivation more, and give kids skills and strategies for how to manage themselves. So those are kind of the three big ideas to, to work toward. Um, yeah. I don't think there's one perfect process for doing that. Some people rip the Band-Aid off and just say, okay, that's it. We're not doing this system anymore. Other people try to wean away slowly. I think there are lots of ways to be successful. But to keep those three ideas in mind, mm -hmm can kind of give you something to work toward and shoot for. Right. Well, uh, Mike, thanks for, for being here. And uh, listeners, you know, if Mike is this thoughtful and articulate late at night, imagine how <laughs> fresh the ideas in his book are, which he wrote on Better Rest. And if he comes and works with you at your school, uh, you can learn more about Mike's work at leadinggreatlearning.com. Um, you know, we're not even getting 100% Mike right now, and it's still pretty fantastic. So, uh, oh, Mike, thanks, thanks for being here. Absolutely. It was a joy. Even if it's a little bit late in the evening, I'm always up for talking to you. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And, and uh, we're going to put more information in the show notes. We'll book that link to the live binder that Mike mentioned. We'll also put the information about his book, Tackling the Motivation Crisis, and where you can find it. And uh, please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews or visit thepodcast.network to learn about all of our other shows. 